Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Jerry, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. Can you just introduce yourself and give a little bit of context about who you are and how you got started in the IFB movement? Okay, and thank you for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Um, My name is Jerry Massey, and in 2001, uh, I became very um, concerned about documenting clergy sexual abuse of children in Christian fundamentalism. I felt it was, I believe it was my calling, and I followed it out until uh, about 2014 when my health collapsed and I could no longer do it. But still, I, I kind of keep my hand in, keep my ear to the ground. I've written a couple books. I produced a podcast for several years, two podcasts, in fact, and um, did a couple audio online documentaries. Right. Yeah. No, I found you pretty early on. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, for people that already know my story, like I, my first encounter with any story of abuse within the IFB was someone that actually was attending my church. And so, um, I probably came across one of your articles or something at that time as well, um, with all the things that I was reading. But, um, I know for me building out the abuser database for the IFB for, doing quick research to see, you know, who's from what state, what connection to a pastor, um, your book, uh, the big book of bad Baptist preachers has been like, I mean, an invaluable resource. Um, <laughs> oh, perfect. So, um, but yeah, that's been a huge resource. Your, thank your you. blog has been a huge resource. Oh, thank um, you. you know, the audio documentary has been awesome as well. And there's, you know, one thing that you do really well that I've struggled with is contextualizing like a certain scenario. So like who's connected to who, how are these things being systematically covered up? Because one, the IFB by its nature doesn't do a big job of like tracking that stuff on its own. It doesn't show clear connections. And so I know with your audio documentary side, like there's certain stories where 
you take the whispers of what's happening, you take the accounts of what's happening and assemble it into the story. Like um, Michael Strofe out of Pleasant Valley in Chico. There's not a lot of hard evidence out there as far as what his case is when you start Googling his name, but there's plenty of, you know, very poorly kept secrets within that world. So I, I appreciate your, your approach to it. I think it's been super helpful. Thank you. Well, it was important to me from the beginning to try to always meet the biblical standard of two or three witnesses. And Mm -hmm. so there have been one or two cases where a victim was so overwrought uh, and was willing to have their name used that I would do the account just based on a single victim. But in 108 cases, that was probably two or three cases. Normally, my procedure was I had to have two accounts And even if I didn't name them, I had to know that they were willing to be named if I had to name them, that in other words, they would back me up. And I kept to that. And I think that has given the data I've put together a certain reliability that people um, overall usually can can still look at it and say, yes, this is true. The story is true. We've got some witnesses. Of course, it's always better to use news accounts um, that's, you know, or, or police reports. But. Um, if two people, you know, would give me accounts that overall matched, I would, I would use that. Right. So what was it that initially sparked your first, I mean, obviously actually writing has been a, a huge thing for you for seems for a very long time. So, but as far as writing about the, you know, fundamentalist movement, when was it that you decided to take that on? Was there a certain case that you saw personally that really set you in motion? Was it just hearing a ton of these and just built to a point where you had to say something? What was kind of the guiding factor there? Well, I think the Brent Stevens case, mm. you know, was probably the case that was on my mind <clears throat> all the time. And I had first learned of the Brent Stevens case, like in the mid 1990s. And sort of as I, I was slowly coming out of fundamentalism, but was still very conservative evangelical. Um, uh, and, you know, I would hear about the Brent Stevens case. And then somebody said to me, hey, you know, Royal Glover knows a lot about that case. I, I don't know if you've ever had contact with Royal Glover. He was I have the lawyer. I, I want wrote, to. Very, yeah, okay. Very he wrote badly. Fundamental Seduction. The thing that really touched off for me was 9-11. When 9-11 hmm. happened, I had a great... I wouldn't call it a crisis of faith because I believed in Christ more. I had a great crisis of, I guess, shame. I looked at these people suffering. Um, just, I, I still tear up at it. I just saw the death and I believed and still believe in Eric. I don't mind if you don't believe this, that God had judged this country in its two great idols, money, the World Trade Center, and our confidence in our military might, the Pentagon, that God threw down two idols. And I looked at my life and I thought, okay, I'm, I was in my 40s. And I, and I thought, okay, I've never been married. I've never had an affair. So I'm pure. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a thief. But I looked at all that and I thought, I'm a terrible Christian. What, what have I actually done? What have I actually done to serve the Lord? What have I actually right. done? That ha- I mean, it's to my benefit that I don't fool around sexually, that I'm not into drugs. That benefits me. Right. But I, and, and in my, I just realized I was a selfish, horrible Christian. I had not lived up to my profession of faith. And I spent the afternoon um, of 9-11, uh, 9/11 praying. 
And I think by that night or the next day, I thought I started to put together, what do I know how to do? I knew how to do this thing called root cause analysis. And I, and I, and that the Brent Stevens case was, was on my mind again. And I thought, you know something, this is a terrible evil. And I believe God has judged us because of a terrible evil. So I am going to make sure that this one terrible evil, that they don't get away with it anymore. And I thought, there might even be six or seven child abuse cases out there in fundamental churches. I'm going to find them and I'm going to document them hmm. and I'll just put them on the Internet and let God choose like how how famous this is. But they're going to be on the Internet like they won't be swept under the rug anymore. Hmm. I will put them out there. And I was so naive. I really thought like six or seven would be the hmm. max of how many cases you, I would discover. You would hope, you know? And, yeah, you um, would hope. So um, for those that don't know, just for context, and I think it's important, um, can you just break down the the Brent Stevens case was something I was unfamiliar with until, um, I mean, probably end of last year um, when oh, okay. I started. I, I found out that whole other thread of the David Hiles. I was familiar with the scandals around him, but that was one that switched, you know, kind of slipped past me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Brent Stevens case just for people who don't know what it is and, you know, maybe direct them toward it, you know, where you have done writing about it? Yeah. Um, Brent Stevens was, he was, Dave Hiles went down to a church called Miller Road Baptist Church to be its pastor. And that ties in with Joy's story, but I won't steal her thunder. He went down there. He was married to Paula. Um, while he was there, he had numerous affairs and this was discovered when, a church custodian found a suitcase full of pornographic pictures of Dave with a bunch of different church women. So Dave um, got in front of the church and said he was sorry if he'd hurt anybody. But Brenda Stevens was one of the women. She stayed with Dave. Paula left him with their two children and Brenda went with Dave and Brenda had two children. Brent was <clears throat> the younger child. And he was, I think, just like walking at that time. And then later after they were up in Bolingbrook, Illinois, like people noticed Brent wasn't walking. He, his development seemed stunted. So somebody actually got him to a doctor. I don't think it was his parents. And they found huh. that I think it was eight or nine bones in his body were broken and had been broken at different times and had never been treated. He was taken from them. Um, Paul Cialino was the child uh, child welfare police officer assigned to the case, the detective. Um, he was very concerned. He tried to protect Brent, but ultimately the court gave Brent back to David and Brenda. And Paul Cialino told the judge that signed off on that, that Brent would die if he went back with them. And then within a few weeks, Brent was dead. There was an empty bottle of Actifed under Brent's bed. Brent's brother had contacted me at one point and told me he remembered that night. And he said David dressed Brent in a lot of clothing. And um, he, you know, he told me that he saw David administer the, the drug to Brent in an overdose and kill him. It was a weekend. Um, uh, David and Brenda rushed Brent out to be embalmed and buried. Paul Cialino uh, came back. He, when he found out about it, he, he got the body exhumed. There was as much of an autopsy as could be done. There was an inquest. David pleaded the fifth at the inquest. 
Falsiolino declared that Dave Hiles had, had murdered Brent Stevens. He was he was very forthright and unafraid. And Dave Hiles did everything he could to bully him. Cialino said it on the air that, that Dave Hiles was the prime suspect in this, even though the inquest returned. Oh, I can't remember what it was. It, they not murder, but but like an unresolved death. Like that was what they had come back with. David Hiles set out to follow in his father's footsteps. But his zest for women cost him his pulpit and his first marriage. When David left a Texas church in disgrace, he and his girlfriend, Brenda Stevens, moved to Bolingbrook, Illinois, with her two children by her first marriage. It wasn't long before her youngest son, 17-month-old Brent Stevens, came to the attention of abuse investigators. In 1985, they found him with a broken leg plus eight or nine bones in various stages of healing. Paul Cialino was a homicide investigator for the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services. He and his team fought, unsuccessfully, to keep Brent away from David and Brenda. I wasn't concerned this child was going to be abused again. I was concerned this kid was going to wind up dead. That was my concern. His concern was justified. A few months later, Brent Stevens was found dead in his crib. Due to bureaucratic bungling, an inconclusive autopsy was done at a hospital instead of the morgue. But at the inquest, David Hiles invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Brenda, the mother of the dead child, was a no-show. As for the status of the investigation... This case is an open case still today. And nothing's been done. Can anything be done with this? Absolutely. It's a murder case. I would even go further and say that if I could get David and Brenda in a court of law, they'd both get convicted of murder, without a doubt. I have a dead child with a history of abuse, and I have two people who are the only people who access to that child at night. With Brent, you know, uh, and, and Eric edit this out if it's too much, but I, I question God. Like, how could you let this happen to this little boy? How could you let this happen? And I prayed about it for a long time. And eventually I realized I'm asking God this so that I can be comfortable with Brent's death. Like I have to be able to live my life. So somehow God has to make sense of this to me. And I realized if I just set that aside and love Brent so that Brent becomes Brent, my son, then I'll understand the love of God for the victims and the Lord did it, and Brent became Brent, my son. And I wish, I wish I could have that love for every person that I meet. Um, but, but so far, I don't. Like everybody else, I still struggle to love my neighbor. But Brent became Brent, my son, and that was when I, when I started being harassed for what I was doing on the original Fighting Fundamentalist forums, I told them that I will always be the person who calls him Brent, my son, because I understand that that is actually the mind of Christ toward each one of us. Mm. He is our, our father, our brother our best friend. And when we start adopting that mindset, we stop saying, Lord, how can you do this? But we, we get more into participating in the suffering with the person. And, right. and that to me, I think was a milestone in my faith. And I'm, so I hope that answers your question. Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, it, it, it does. And I think that really, I mean, that kind of explains the why of why do this, you know? And I think, you know, I've had people ask me that, you know, why, 
I've gotten every rebuttal. I mean, why waste time talking about a dying movement? Why spend time talking about such a small movement? Why waste time, you know, talking about an organization that, you know, by the numbers is not doing as much as this organization or that organization. And I don't know. I, I always, you know, I'm just saying this for context. I'm not saying this to make myself sound like whatever, but I'm, I'm a very empathetic person and I, and I, I resonate very strongly with what you just said about, you know, treating it as if it's your son, treating each case as if it's in, I do like doing this show um, for me with that personality type has been very hard because for me, when I sit down and talk to somebody or when I sit down and, you know, hear someone's story, my mind, my mind drifts to what if this was my sister or my mom or my brother or my son or my daughter? Like the minute I, I think for a second, you know, what if this was my daughter having a daughter myself it, it changes your entire way of viewing these cases. It doesn't become what percentage of IFB versus the Catholic church or what percentage of IFB versus the public school system or what percentage of pastors that if one person experienced this, it needs to be talked about. And the fact right. that it's yes. not, you know, and the truth is at the end of the day, it's not one person. It's not one, you know, one random guy. That's a bad guy. Like there has been a movement filled with people who protect or fuel or encourage abuse within churches. And that's just the truth. (laughs) And, and it's, you know, people can fight me on, you know, whether it's systemic or not or whether, but my question to everybody is if that's your first response is to prove that it's, you know, it's what you said. I need this to not be happening. It's more comfortable for me to not think of this as a real thing. And right. so, yeah, I, I think that really beautifully answers the question because it is something it's hard for me to explain is like when I get on the phone with somebody, you know, early on, like I started splitting up my calls because I need that time after a call to process that, oh, that yeah, level right, of stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely that's, that's awesome. And so, well, I, I can say I documented 108 cases that I published. Yeah. I probably looked into maybe 120 altogether, but some right. didn't meet the standards. So about 108, well, 108. In 108 cases, no church ever did the right thing at all, yeah. ever. Well, that no was church the, took the side of the victims. Yeah, that's the shocking part of your book, um, of uh, Big Book of Bad Baptist Preachers, is you list out was church discipline taken. And every page you turn to, no, 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 all the way through. Um, didn't, no. So, so when you started writing about, you know, Brent Stevens initially, and then diving into some of these other cases, what was the response? I know that you've gotten your fair share of backlash. I mean, it's been, that's been the majority of your responses, but was there a period in the beginning where people were listening, where people did try to understand, or was it instant kind of trying to rebut what you were saying? Well, this was back in 2001, going in, so September of 2001, so soon 2002. We didn't have Facebook back then. Right. We had forums, internet forums. And at that time, Jack Piles and many fundamentalists said it was a sin to use the internet. So there was not a large IFB or fundamentalist presence on the internet. So a guy named Don Elborn created the Fighting Fundamentalist Forums, Mm. the first version of that. 
when I started posting, I was more um, rebutting some of the silly notions of fundamentalism, like women have to can't wear pants. And right. all, I was because all that time I was still gathering information. I did believe that once I had put together this half dozen set of cases and presented my evidence that people would say, oh, wow, look at this, you know, and there's evidence. She's right. We have to, yeah. we ought to restructure, you know, and I really did think it was going to be a year's work. And, and as I started doing cases, I did realize there's more than a half dozen, but again, then I was like between 10 and 25. Like I still had no grasp. There was still anomalies many. in your mind. Yes. Yeah, that's it. This is outlier data that we have to be careful about, but um, I didn't realize that, that, and this is true. The molesting of children is just as much a part of independent fundamental Baptist as baptism is. It is mm. absolutely entrenched. It is part of the culture and it's going to have to be eradicated from the culture painfully or difficult. You know, there's going to have to be massive changes to get this out of that culture. Mm. Um, so when I finally did present it, which I think was around January or February of 2002, as soon as I presented it, even people who were who would have considered themselves allies with me told me I was, I mean, they were rude. You know, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. There's no such thing. It, and I'm, you know, posting this stuff and showing them. Nobody could refute my evidence. No, they just, Attacked it was my assessment. Right. Um, I said, because these churches are each independent, there's no accountability and people just go from one church to another and nobody knows and it's covered up and children aren't respected. And um, I was unanimously shouted down and like the meek person I was, I came right back and said, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't know anything. Haven't you read the Bible? And and this is what I told you when we were speaking off mic. Meekness is something I'm beginning to learn uh, here in 2020. But in 2002, I was I was not meek, and I was always I always tried to be gentle with the I called them the lambs, the people who had been through this. I always you know wanted to be gentle with them, but I'm telling right. you, to pastors, I was hell on wheels. Right. Well, and I think that to you know, again, we can all look back. Like I've said, there's things I've said or or times sure. I've been flippant or sarcastic where maybe I shouldn't have been, but there's also part of it where I think sometimes. Uh, it's good to be hell on wheels, you know? And so um, yeah, I think I mean, sometimes it's needed. They did, you know, in that culture, women are considered stupid, meek, and ineffectual. And it, it did really dismay many of these men to discover that I could certainly hold my own with them on the Bible, that I was, you know, I could argue them to a standstill. They could not answer me. And I could show them, you know, it's interesting, Eric, Fundamentalists say they believe the Bible, they follow the Bible. The Bible does not acknowledge denominations at all. The church is one. It is right. one church. And fundamentalists just look right past that. they thinking that the Bible is written for a bunch of independent churches. It's not. The, the Bible is written for the body of Christ. So mm. I would get, get me on that. Oh, please get me on that on church, the necessity of church <laughs> discipline. And, and they couldn't. And I don't want to keep talking. I want to give you time to answer questions. But as this journey continued, by mid-2002, I began to realize that most IFB pastors do not know the Bible right. at all. They have very, very poor knowledge of the scripture. 
let's let's dive into that in a second. I do want to cover one thing you just said, and just because because when I when I'm listening to interviews, I'm thinking too rebuttals from somebody who's listening who maybe is in that world. So when you make the statement, you know, child molestation is as part of being IFB as baptism is. There's probably someone listening who's thinking, well, I'm a part of an IFB church and. I would never do that. So like, what right, does she mean sure, by that? They sure. might be defensive. So can you just expound on that a little bit and just what you're, cause I, I would somewhat lean to agree with you in a lot of ways on what you're saying. And I think, I think I get where you're getting at, but I'm curious to hear how you would expound on that or how you would explain that to somebody. Um, well, I, I documented 108 cases of, hmm. of child sexual abuse in the IFB and no church ever did the right thing. So that right. tells you there's a cultural more there that the <clears throat> the practice is well in the IFB also children are often viewed as enemies children are those things you need to keep hidden yeah and, seen, not you know heard. we've heard all <laughs> the yeah well we've heard all the sermons on you need to hit your your children yeah. she's even by making a pitiful look appeal to her husband she is taking away all authority from that child's life if that child is going to have authority mother you gotta let that man be the authority. We had a kid there in the church who kept coming and had these black spots all over his head. <laughs> Punish him with the rod severely. If he screams too hard with the first five gets hysterical, wait. You know, a little psychological terror is sometimes more effective than the pain. A father who will not take his part in discipline, when he does discipline, it's out of anger. Make love to him. If your husband is an angry man, make love. Get rid of his frustration. Make him happy. So I give him five more. So now get up. Still got a bad attitude. Get up. I'm going to say, you're still crying. I'm going to give you something to cry about. And again, that relies on a twisting of scripture. That the Old Testament definitely teaches if you have a son who is behaving like a hoodlum, you ought to hang him up like a servant and whip him. I mean, that is true. That is in there. But again, if we look at the story of Samson, we see Samson was going around burning people's crops and, you know, doing these awful things. But if we go back to the law, you know, the, those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, there's nothing in the Torah about striking your children. There's nothing in the entire Bible about ever striking a daughter. There's nothing about striking an infant. Mm. The, the verses on striking your children are about, really, we would say teenage boys who are engaging in being hoodlums. Um, and while I might be, you know, a little reticent about that, that's a far cry from what is being taught in, in fundamentalism today about hitting everybody for anything. Yeah, a far so, cry from breaking the will of a six-month-old. Yes, right, the Bible never tells you to break the will of your child. And I mean, Christ is the restorer and the one who repairs us. We don't, we don't go to Christ to break the will of our children. Our children, again, Christ said, if you harm one of these or turn them from the faith, it's better for you than a millstone be tied around your neck. And the IFB, I mean, look at all these young people yeah. who've come to your, your, your group and who were coming to me and saying, you know, even if they weren't molested, they are so distraught over all the disgrace and shame and abuse, other types of abuse, physical abuse. But to answer your question again, I, I would point to the 108 cases. I would point to other cases before me. Phil Johnson, 
uh, of John MacArthur's group actually had put out an article about sexual abuse and fundamentalism well mm. before the 1970s. And I don't have that at hand, but he look. was citing yeah. cases. Um, the, you know, when you look at the, just look at any preacher in fundamentalism who has ever written a book on how to raise children, guaranteed his kids have done awful things. I mean, it's, you know, Jeff Owens and his kid, Jeremiah, Jack Hiles with Dave Hiles. Um, but I would, I would fall back on my metrics. I would say, look at these metrics. This is not a one-off. This is part of this culture that mm. a month can't go by where I couldn't find a new case of child sexual abuse in the IFB. It is definitely, it's part of their culture because of that. And then it's part of their culture because their culture does not allow calling people, calling pastors to accountability. The fact that they refuse to make their pastors accountable, um, it would when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.